Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. I want to take a moment to welcome you to 90 Minutes of Information. I have six broadcast partners standing by around the world to give us detailed information about current events unfolding in their regions of the world. We're going to have to look at the Israeli elections. They did not come out like they wanted them to, probably on the horizon, a fifth Israeli election within two years. Then we'll talk about Passover. It's the beginning of that eight-day Jewish festival, the Passover season for the Jewish world, talking about all the activities that go with that, a desire to hold a Passover sacrifice on the Temple Mount, which was rejected by the Israeli government. We'll get to all of those in addition to that China moving into the Middle East. And we're going to talk with the man who covers geopolitical activities for us, Ken Timmerman, to deal with China. Ken, great to have you along. A lot of information we need to get from you. Let me get started. There are experts who are claiming that the Cold War between the United States and China actually began last week there in Alaska, and it could get really, really hot at any moment. They say experts are making that statement. I want to go to the expert that can tell us. What about this headline? This is a bona fide China expert who put out that opinion, Jimmy, is Gordon Chang. He's been studying the Chinese Communist Party for 30 years, and he believes that the summit between the new U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, and the Chinese foreign minister that took place up in Alaska a week ago was, in fact, the beginning not just of a new Cold War between China and the United States, but potentially, potentially the start of much more active hostilities. He noted the way that the Chinese media and the foreign ministry itself referred to the meeting. They said afterwards, and remember, there there was an intense exchange. The Chinese berated Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, for 16 minutes about racism in the United States, about saying that the United States government was killing black citizens. I mean, all kinds of outrageous things. And the Chinese media afterwards said there was a strong smell of gunpowder in the room. This is, according to Gordon Chang, and I, I take his account to be um, very serious and, and, and real. He said, this is one of the words that Beijing will use when it wants others to know that war is on its mind. They, they, I cannot remember when they have used that term recently. So this is very, very significant. Let me say one other thing. When the Chinese are accusing the United States of racism and they talk about Black Lives Matter, it's, it's extraordinary because, in fact, we know now from the very good research from my friend Trevor Loudon, uh, who's a New Zealand conservative who is an absolutely crackerjack researcher and has worked on radical U.S. groups, leftist groups, communist groups around the world, Black Lives Matter is, in fact, a Chinese communist organization. Its leaders are members of the Communist Party. They have actually pledged allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. So it is a bit rich to have the Chinese a foreign minister braiding his American counterpart, saying you're you're killing Americans and suppressing Black Lives Matter. What he's really saying is that you are uh, maybe not accepting everything from our front group, Black Lives Matter, in the United States, as we'd like you to do. 
Ken, do me a favor for those of us who are laymen. What does it mean, a Cold War? Just a brief understanding of that phrase. Well, a Cold War is hostilities between two major powers without engaging in a shooting war. So we had this for decades with the Soviet Union, and as part of a Cold War, the two powers occasionally engage in proxy wars, where they do not fight each other directly, but as in Vietnam, they will fight through proxies. So uh, we did not fight the Soviets in Vietnam directly, but we did through each other's the, the side that we were supporting. Similarly, we're seeing that happen with Iran and Saudi Arabia. You see a proxy war between the two of them in Yemen, where they support other groups that don't engage in a direct conflict. So a Cold War is fundamental hostility, a fundamental clash of interest between two powers, and in this case China and America, two major powers, that does not erupt into direct shooting between the two of them. And as of this time, China facing sanctions from the West, therefore they're looking towards the Middle East for alliances and influence. And I understand China's foreign minister has started his Middle East tour and especially focused in the front of his agenda, the Iranian nuclear deal. Talk to us about these two stories. Well, this recent tour by the Chinese foreign minister, you know, we've seen this before where the Chinese try to reinsert themselves in the Middle East or in Africa or some other part of the world. Here they're trying to get in between the United States in two very, very key areas. One, they've invited the Palestinians to Beijing to talk about uh, their demands against Israel. They've not invited Israel or the United States. And the second thing is they are trying, again, to get themselves right in the middle of the Iran nuclear negotiations into a new Iran nuclear deal. Remember, as a permanent member of the Security Council, they and Russia were part of the deal in 2015, and they want to make sure that the U.S. understands they will be part of any new deal that the Biden administration uh, negotiates with Iran. This is big trouble because China sees itself as an ally, a strategic ally of the Iranian regime, and they have been a protector of their nuclear weapons program. So this bodes uh, big trouble for the future. We have a couple of difficulties on the line, so friends, this is an important statement from Ken Timmerman. In fact, all of the answers and details to my questions key, so just put up with it if you will. Well, Ken, let's continue on. You know, how is the United States tensions with Russia and China going to impact Israel with all of this that you're talking about? What impact on Israel will it produce? Well, you know, I've said for quite some time, Jimmy, that Israel must play a balancing act. Their primary military relationship is with the United States. Under the Trump administration, the United States was extraordinarily supportive of Israel. Remember, President Trump moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and he also helped to facilitate the negotiation of the Abraham Accords. Very, very important things to do. So the Israelis want to maintain a good relationship with any administration in Washington, but now they also have relationships with Russia and China. And Russia, remember, they've been talking to Putin, Netanyahu's been talking to Putin on a regular basis since 2015 when Russia got engaged in Syria. And there has not 
been, to my knowledge, a direct military clash between Israel and Russia, despite Israel's long track record of conducting military strikes, airstrikes in Syria against Iranian targets. So they have deconflicted that, and that is a very important goal of any Israeli government. China now wants to get more engaged. They also have a commercial relationship with Israel, and this has posed a problem for the Pentagon in the past. They are, in, they are directly involved, China, investing in the ports of Ashdod and the port of Haifa, Israel's biggest port. The Pentagon has raised objections to this in the past, so I see the conflict here is going to be increasingly between the Biden administration and Israel, while Israel tries to shore up those relations it has with Russia and China, so it doesn't get squeezed by several big powers at once. One of the photos that we posted on our top 10 news stories on the home page of my website, prophecytoday.com, included the president of Iran, Rouhani, Russian's President Vladimir Putin and Tayyip Erdogan, President of Turkey. And the headline said, Iran-Russia-Turkey signal growing alliance. Prophetically, great significance. What about it politically, Ken? Well, it's a big story, and it's something that we talk about frequently here on this program, Jimmy, because we need to watch every signal on the ground. We need to watch what these powers are doing, how they're jockeying. It's an on-again, off-again alliance. I think this week what we're seeing uh, is that it's more on-again, where Turkey and Russia are are cooperating. Russia and Iran and Turkey are cooperating. And, uh, you know, there's something that has been going on on a regular basis, where the Turks will, in particular, Turks will lie about their rivalry or their alleged rivalry with Iran. You know, they say, well, we're battling Iran in Iraq for influence and the Iranians are supporting this, this militia in Iraq, and we're supporting a different militia. In the end, that's small peanuts. That's not important compared to the big picture. Iran and Turkey have a strategic interest. Both of them uh, have an interest in getting rid of the Jewish state of Israel. They're both opposed to the Jewish state of Israel. And the Turks have never, to my understanding, have never opposed Iran's nuclear weapons program. So I see these powers gravitating together, uh, working together, and their militaries are getting increasingly used to cooperating together. And that, indeed, has huge implications for what I know you will discuss later on in this program. Absolutely, Ken. And by the way, you're the expert. I appreciate you giving me that insight and all of our listeners Uh, But it's backed up by Ezekiel chapter 38, which mentions Iran, Russia, and Turkey. Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities for us around the world, I often say those activities are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And that's exactly what we're talking about in my conversation with Ken Timmerman today. Ken, thank you so very much. Appreciate the conversation. Sorry for the problem with the electronics, but we needed to have your report. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we have David Dolan standing by for his Middle East News Update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Hi everybody, welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga. And as I've already told you, we're going to be talking with our broadcast partners, getting the latest details on current events happening in the region they are covering for us here on Prophecy Today. David Dolan is the man who gives us our Middle East news update. By the way, this is a key report for all of us who are students of Bible prophecy. Much to talk about with the Passover coming, and in addition to that, the recent elections, what happened or did not happen. We'll do that with David. Let's get underway, David. Passover beginning tonight. High security for the Jewish people there in Israel, but not only those Jewish people, they're Jews from all over the world gathering there in Jerusalem for Passover at this time, aren't they not? Well, there isn't so many uh, people from outside of Israel uh, this Passover, uh, similar to last year when the COVID restrictions were just beginning. The airport is back open and they're moving towards that, but uh, it's mostly internal. And once again, the government has asked people to be careful and be in smaller groups and whatever, but the houses of worship are for the most part open, and certainly it is a very important Jewish feast, one that people normally would be very much in crowds and together, and we'll see some of that, just not quite as normal. And that, of course, will mean security to be very high for even those Israelis who are going to participate in the Passover activities. For example, 
In a couple of days, the priestly blessings will be pronounced there at the Western Wall Plaza. Those men qualified to be priests in the temple that's to be built, maybe in the very near future there in Jerusalem, will pronounce those blessings. That's a special time for the Jewish people, isn't it? Oh, it always is one of my favorite events of the Jewish calendar year to see all the Kohanim in Hebrew, the priests, uh, people of priestly descent, gathering together and saying the prayers associated with the, in Hebrew, Birkat Kohanim, the blessing of the priests. The Lord bless you and protect you, deal kindly and graciously with you. It's based on Numbers 6, 24 through 26. And the prayers are, of course, also recited in synagogues all over the country and all over the world. It is definitely an important time, but one that is always uh, met with extra security because, of course, you get a bunch of people in one place, and this mainly at the Western Wall. You have the possibility of mass casualty attacks, and they're always on alert for that. I understand, David, that because of the COVID situation, they're going to, for the first time, have two different events where the priestly blessings will be pronounced. They'll have one, let those people clear out of the Western Wall Plaza, and then bring another group in. That'll help just a bit as far as COVID is concerned, but uh, really not the best, is it? Well, no. You know, nobody uh, is thrilled with any of the restrictions, really, that have been in place over the last year on and off. Israel's gone through several COVID waves, and, you know, it's been very, very difficult. But over half the population now has received two of the vaccines. That's Uh, the largest in the world. President Biden said something about the U.S. being on top on that uh, score this week. But actually, Israel is quite a bit ahead in that uh, way. And uh, yes, they'd like to go back to things as they were. And hopefully next year that will be the case. But for now, improvise and see what you can do and uh, keep as much normalcy as possible. David, earlier in the week, it was on Tuesday, I believe, that the Israeli elections took place. Now, That's an unfinished piece of business. I want you to talk about that. However, because of Passover, it's going to put the elections a bit on the back burner, will it not? Well, they always knew, of course, that when they scheduled it for just before Passover, that that would mean at least a week pause before they would actually begin the horse trading that always follows Israeli elections, since uh, no one party ever wins a majority of 61 seats in the Knesset. That has never happened. So you always have to bargain with some of the other parties that won, over 12 won this time, seats in the Knesset. And that will begin soon after the weekly long Passover holiday, but it's going to be difficult. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's bloc received 52 seats in the Knesset. The uh, parties committed to anybody but Bibi, as they say, took 57 seats, so they don't have a majority either, and there's just two parties that are not committed. One of them, Jimmy, is a right-wing party, the Yamina party, headed by Naftali Bennett, The other party is an Arab party, the Ra'am party, with four seats. And even though it has uh, Islamic members, they said they might be willing to sit with the Netanyahu, but they have pretty strong demands. The problem with that is one of the right-wing smaller parties said they won't sit in a government with that Arab party. 
So really, it's very unclear how it's going to come out, Jimmy. There's always the possibility in the Israeli system that individual Knesset members can be wooed from other parties to join either side, more likely the Netanyahu side. And I think in the end, he will probably remain as prime minister, but very high prospects again of yet a fifth election. (laughs) Nobody wants it in just over two years, coming sometime later this year. David, let's change the focus just a bit. China is planning to invite the Palestinians and the Israelis for talks, peace talks. What do you know about this story? Well, it's yet another sign that China's trying to become a global superpower. They certainly have been investing heavily in the Middle East, including in Israel, buying basically the port of Haifa and some other things inside of Israel. And they have quite a bit of business contacts with Israeli companies and so influence in Israel. And they've always been pretty pro-PLO, even under Mao, going way back many, many decades, that's been the case. They feel they have this influence with both sides. Why not give it a try? The Israelis are not overthrilled with it, and I can tell you the United States is not at all uh, happy with that idea. But who knows? They may see if they can get in there. Russia wants to do the same. Turkey's indicated it might become the new uh, negotiator. So everybody trying to steal that role from the United States. And included in that phrase, everybody, You would have to mention the Middle East Quartet. They are now discussing reviving the Israeli-Palestinian talks. David, tell everybody who the Quartet is and what are the chances for them being able to bring the Israelis and the Palestinians to the negotiating table. Well, called the Quartet because four powers that uh, basically were very involved in the peace process over many, many years, and they had some success at bringing the uh, parties together. But again, Jimmy, uh, this just strikes most Israelis as ridiculous, all of this talk right now, because there's absolutely been no change on the Palestinian street. Hamas, the radical movement, still controlling the Gaza Strip, and there were more rockets from there this week into Israel, and the PLO controlling Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, for the most part, but they are internally divided, so they're not even on the same page at all, and we just discussed Israel. Israel doesn't have a firm government, doesn't have firm leadership right now, is in a muddle. So neither side is ready to sit down and negotiate peace. So all of these parties, international parties that are talking about this, the quartet being the latest, China, these other things, it just seems like a non-starter to most Israelis. And again, they're preoccupied with Iran and the possibility of war with uh, that power much more than they are worried about the Palestinians at present. You have told me before you don't think peace will be on the agenda for either the Israelis, the Palestinians, or anybody else. You feel that same way as of today? Well, again, Jimmy, there's just no ground reason by what the situation is actually in the Palestinian territories and in Israel to think that this is the time to sit down and negotiate a peace accord. They've had much stabler governments on both sides in past years, and they still weren't able to get a meaningful peace that would last out of that, even under Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres, and when uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was stronger. 
than he's been in the last two years with these constant elections. Uh, they still weren't able to succeed in that, and that's basically because the Palestinians want to see Israel destroyed, or at least a lot of them do, and uh, they see the possibility of that happening with Iran and its allies gearing up for war. So we're waiting for war, really, not for peace at this time. Sad to say that, but that is the truth. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us right here on Prophecy Today. He has been a longtime journalist. He's a student of Bible prophecy. That's why we bring him to the table. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. You'll have another Middle East news update for us at that time. Glad to do it, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Winky Madad standing by. I'll get a little bit deeper into the election and talk about Passover, the priestly blessings. It's going to be right here when I have a conversation with Winky Madad on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy D. Young here at Broadcast Central. We are going to continue talking with our broadcast partners. Therefore, we go now to Israel. We go up to a place called Shiloh, center part of the state in Judea and Samaria. Great historic and prophetic significance, as well as an opportunity to be able to talk with one of the residents of Shiloh, former mayor of that very biblical city, Winky Madad, a regular broadcast partner. Winky, the fourth election has taken place. It's not really... That good of an election for the opportunity to set up a stable government. Talk to me about that, and uh, we'll get into the final count. Can there be a coalition government formed, etc.? But this fourth election in two years did not work out as well as everybody was hoping, did it? No, it did not, because Mr. Netanyahu, his natural coalition and his usual coalition partners, are not at the present moment, it seems, and though it's not the very final count, we presume that basically it is, because the amount of votes left to count is just a few thousand here and there. He just cannot come across above the 60-61 necessary for to set up a government. I'd like to try to explain to our listeners, even though we've touched on the topic before, here in Israel we have a parliamentary democracy. And we have a lot of parties running uh, because you only need to pass a threshold of 3.25% 
which is about 140, 145,000 votes, and too many parties think they can make it. I can try to compare it for our listeners who aren't quite familiar. Uh, think of a high wall, and you need a ladder of 120 rungs to get up there. But if you get 61 rungs of that ladder, you jump all the way up to the top immediately. However, those rungs of the ladder are divided among various parties. And the present election means that, for example, Likud has 30 rungs, and this party has 18, and that party has 9, and another one, another three parties have 6. So they all got to get together and, and make that ladder get to at least 61 so they can pop up and get the pot of gold at the top of the wall. So that not being the case, looks like Netanyahu is considering the possibility of putting together, I think they call it a minority coalition, where they would bring in a number of members of the Knesset or of the Arab persuasion and allow them to help get to that 61st rung on that ladder that you were talking about. Is it possible that Likud and the right wing would bring in these Arab members of Knesset to get the coalition government together? Well, what you're talking about to explain, uh, a minority government means that, okay, Mr. Netanyahu, who has the largest Knesset representation, he can't reach 61. But on the other hand, if he can get enough votes or enough votes that will not vote against him, that will not allow those who want to oppose him to override him. For example, he can get, say, 58 seats. But the opposition can only get, say, 54, 55. And so you'll say, but what happens? That doesn't add up to 120. Well, the rest of those votes, say five or six votes, they simply don't vote. Or they walk out of the chamber when the vote takes place, and he gets a majority. The, his opposition cannot override him. But that's a very, very ticklish situation, Jimmy, to be very honest and and fair to our listeners, especially, as you intimated, this is not just an Arab party. It's an Arab party that is quite fundamentalist in their Islamism, and they're not very happy with Zionism or the state of Israel, but they're willing to cooperate. And so that leaves the hard right-wing parties that have joined with Mr. Netanyahu uh, a choice of letting him in or not, and it doesn't look good as I speak to you. That also being the case, does that mean that a fifth election is on the horizon? And if that be the case, when would that take place? First of all, Mr. Netanyahu is going to try to pull some other people off their parties or to convince one or two parties that they portrayed themselves as right-wing but anti-Netanyahu, he says, well, you've got a choice. Do you want to go to elections a fifth time within four and a half years, uh, or two and a half years, as the case may be, or do you want to uh, support me? What, what's the choice? But that's a very difficult thing, Jimmy, because these two parties ran on a very anti-Netanyahu platform, even though they claim to be more right-wing than left-wing which leaves things very mixed up, not only for me, but probably for a lot of the politicians that are taking place in the negotiations 
as, as we speak. The prime minister has been a master at being able to form coalition governments in the past. Looks like he has his work cut out for himself this time to put together a coalition government. However, do we know for sure that President Rivlin is going to select Netanyahu to try to put that government together? And if he does, how much time does he have to do that? Uh, Rivlin will probably give it to Netanyahu because he will probably have the best chance or the most recommendations to begin the negotiations. And all told... Netanyahu, I think, can pull it out for almost a month or just over a month, if I'm not mistaken, Jimmy, before he has to return the mandate. But, look, Rivlin has not been uh, very favorably inclined to Netanyahu in the past, and this is Rivlin's last presidency. He, 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 he retires as president in July. He might pull a fast one and walk away. So I have to be honest with you and our listeners that politics sometimes could be a very dirty game, and I'm not going to be able to be even the son grandson of a prophet on this one. It's very <laughs> open because a lot of people will say, listen, this Netanyahu, you have caused four elections in, in two years. Enough is enough, and it just might go this way or that way. Interesting. We'll stay on top of that story with Winky Madat. But all of this happening as Passover, the eight-day Jewish feast, begins. Passover's a blessed time for the Jewish people, isn't it? Well, it is, although sometimes eating the matzah, the unleavened bread, can be a difficult procedure for eight days or seven days in Israel. But yes, it, it is because, first of all, it relives the temple service. The, the Passover sacrifice, uh, all sorts of customs that were at that time, and also it's also family time because Jimmy, you've been here, you know the intermediate days are basically a holiday, and so everybody has off, and there's there's hiking, there's there's family activity for those who are very observant, like myself, and for my wife, of course, very difficult. A couple of days preparing the kitchen, changing everything around getting rid of all the bread and cake and cookies. That's, that's leavened substance, and we don't have that, according to the Bible, in our houses at the, over the Passover. But for the kids, it could be very exciting, and I enjoy it. And I think that it's a very significant distinction of the Jewish people to return to 2,000-plus-year-old custom for the short time, and maybe in the future we'll be able to do it as it is written in the Bible. Absolutely, and I can really understand what you're talking about when you mentioned eating matzah for eight days. As a Christian, Judy and I, my wife and I, uh, would uh, freeze some bread. We weren't able to buy it any place during those eight days, but uh, we were able to break the kosher rules, as Christians often do. Well, speaking of Passover, I know there were a number of high-ranking rabbis who requested from the prime minister the opportunity to be able to do a Passover sacrifice on the Temple Mount. That's not going to happen this year, is it? But they're going to do that sacrifice, a recreation of it near the Temple Mount, are they not? Yes, Jimmy, the reenaction was actually done earlier this week. But I can tell you that on Thursday, the police went around to several homes of suspected Temple Mount activists looking for lambs or goats 
thinking that they could find people who would attempt at least to approach the Temple Mount as an act of protest or as an act of consciousness raising. And so, yes, the Paschal sacrifice will not take place this year, but again, it's making news, so in a certain sense, it is doing the job that it was supposed to be done. Got the attention of the government and, in fact, the world, because we're talking about that particular sacrifice right here on a nationwide program in the United States of America. One more question. During the eight-day feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, the priestly blessings will be pronounced. That's a special time of this Passover season as well, is it not? It is, Jimmy. It will not be as large as in years past. And uh, on my computer, I got a letter from the Western Wall Heritage Foundation saying if I wanted to be there during the priestly blessing, I would have to order a ticket or reserve a place. And so, again, the COVID-19, or as we call it in Israel, the coronavirus, has played its limiting or restricting influence on that. In the past, we've had maybe tens of thousands of people coming at the Western Wall Plaza to reenact the priestly blessing. And this year, it'll, it'll take place, but again, in a smaller dimension. That's the voice of Winky Madad. I have been discussing with Winky a pulpery of items, the elections, of course, the main focus in Israel at this point in time, Passover, the eight-day feast for the Jewish people, and the pronouncement of the priestly blessings by those who are qualified to be priests in the upcoming temple. Winky, thank you so much for your interaction with us. Hak Sameach to you during this time, this season, and we'll talk again real soon. Jimmy, thank you very much for having me on the program and your greeting of Chag Sameach, of a happy and joyful holiday. I hope everybody in the States is feeling well, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Well, right now we're going to change regions of the world from the Middle East, a key region in Bible prophecy, to the secondary region that is so key for the establishment of the revived Roman Empire, and that would be the European Union. John Rood deals with the issues there, political issues, setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. John, it looks like the European Union leaders will discuss relationships with Turkey. They're going to have a video summit upcoming, but uh, Turkey is the top of their agenda. Is that correct? Yes, the EU leaders are responding to Turkey's movements towards a more normalized relations. You know, this is a very precise balancing act. Uh, Turkey had created an enormous amount of tensions in the eastern Mediterranean with Greece and Cyprus. Now it's the friendly time to see how to make some progress. And so there's talk of avoiding the divisions. But it appears Turkey is a winner in a lot of this, and so the EU is very concerned. Turkey is a very powerful country and is going to be exercising their influence in the European Union area more and more. And at the same time, the foreign minister of Russia making the statement that Moscow really has no relationship with the European Union. Is the European Union being focused on and left aside from all of these major players in the world, John? Yes, as how Russia sees it, the Russian foreign minister has 
come out with some very, very strong statements when he was speaking with his counterpart, the Chinese uh, counterpart, saying there's no relations with the EU as an organization, that this has been destroyed by unilateral decisions from Brussels, and uh, the EU has been breaking off relations with Moscow for years, and you know, they don't want to be isolated, but by imposing sanctions, you know, this is creating uh, a quite a tension that's there. So the Russian foreign minister is being quite vocal about the ineffectiveness of the European Union and showing their strength with China. And, of course, Russia and China are both a concern for the European Union. John, it looks like Angela Merkel who has been the chancellor of Germany, will be leaving the political stage pretty soon there in the European Union. I guess I have to ask the question, who's going to speak for the United Europeans after she leaves the scene? This is a tremendous topic, Jimmy. You know, who is the leader of Europe? And because the European Union is so fragmented, you know, the famous line from Henry Kissinger is, if I want to talk to to the leader of Europe, who do I call? It's been Angela Merkel as the Chancellor of Germany who has been more or less the de facto leader of Europe. There's two main candidates that can um, replace her in Germany. Both are uh, leading particular political movements. One more or less backs her, and one is um, a bit more new progress. So let's see what happens there. But this is leaving a vacuum. And in the EU, vacuums are quickly uh, swallowed up. And so it would appear that the president of France, uh, Macron, would become the de facto leader of Europe. And so we can expect that he will be even more ambitious about his vision for Europe as Germany goes through the transition. The power is shifting to Paris. From Germany, And as you bring to our attention President Macron, he is warning Turkey not to interfere in his upcoming presidential election. There's Turkey again impacting the European Union. Yes, Turkey and France are having the hardest uh, relations of their history. Turkey has been known to interfere in the German election 2017. And so French President Macron is just simply saying that it's an inevitable fact that Turkey would be planning to meddle in their elections as well. Of course, we know that Turkey had called for a boycott of French products, etc. But already heading this off at the past, uh, Macron is speaking about the policy of lies, quote-unquote, of uh, Turkey and all of the tension from their unilateral acts in Eastern Mediterranean, uh, human rights records, etc. And so France is hoping that Turkey doesn't turn its back on Europe and turns towards more religious extremism. As you've been listening to this report on the European Union, John Rood's update, you can understand why we bring him to this broadcast table. A lot of political activity There in Europe, we need to keep a focus on it because of the significance that the European Union is to the revival of the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 7. John, thank you for this very important report. Appreciate it, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. Thank you very much for opportunity.
Well, a good friend, long-time friend, and a regular broadcast partner when there's a Jewish holy day or a festival day, the ones in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, but additional Jewish holy days as well. We're talking about Steve Herzig. He is the national director of Friends of Israel, a great ministry involved in reaching out and introducing Jesus Christ as the Messiah to our Jewish friends. Steve, great to have you along with us. Let's get right underway. Please, if you will, rehearse the first Passover so that those listening, maybe for the first time, not familiar with the Passover, this Jewish Holy Day, how it all came about. Well, I'd be happy to, Jimmy, and thanks for inviting me. For your listeners' sake, when they read through the Torah, the first five books, they'll come to the book of Exodus, a very important story, a very important historic event, and that is when the children of Israel were in bondage and had been for over 400 years. We read in Exodus chapter 12 from the Scriptures that it was God who had already selected Moses, who was to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, the most powerful nation on the planet, and after those years of bondage, went to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Exodus chapter 12 is that place where we read about exactly what has to take place in order for that to happen. And that's when the Passover was instituted. And it's an amazing chapter because it talks about the children of Israel are to gather together with a lamb. They're to get that lamb, put the blood on the two side, on the upper doorposts and on the two lintels of their house, And when God saw the blood, he was going to pass over. That meant that the Egyptians, who were following other gods, and if you remember, Jimmy, there were nine previous plagues. Each one of those plagues, as Moses did go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, each one of those plagues was against one specific false god of Egypt. And so that meant the invisible god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the god of Moses, was competing against these false gods, and each time proved himself superior, and in this case, to preserve his people, who put the blood of the, uh, of the lamb on the doorpost, would be spared, whereas Pharaoh's people, and Pharaoh was considered God himself amongst his people, that meant that Pharaoh, who lost that battle, could not defeat the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, as a remembrance of that one-day event, and Jimmy, it happened only once, And from then on, it was to be a memorial. And when you read the Scripture, you find out time after time the references that the prophets use. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul refers to it oftentimes. Stephen uses it in his testimony. as The the writer of the book of Hebrews uses it. Redemption wrought to the children of Israel through the blood of the Lamb. That is the theme. That is what God wants them to remember. And I can tell you growing up, not as a Christian, raised in a Jewish home. Passover was so important. It's a family get-together. It's a reminder of our identity. It's a, it's a reminder that we are not Gentiles, but an encouragement to invite Gentiles to come as guests to see what the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has done, and to be reminded that we as a people have been protected by him regardless of the enemy that we're still here to celebrate and really proclaim to the world we're here, a a redeemed, that is, physical people, redeemed 
where we would be wiped out, we're still here. And, Jimmy, that connotation is so important, not only to the Jewish people, but the theme of redemption, of redeeming a people for his namesake through the blood of the Lamb carries on in the New Testament, as you well know. And the origins of that original Passover, going back some 3,500 years ago, let me suggest to all of you listening in today, you might want to be able to go and study that original event that happened, Exodus chapter 12. It'd be a great, great read for you, especially during this particular weekend. Well, is there any difference? Actually, you talked about the families today observing the Passover. Any difference between what happened 3,500 years ago and today? Oh, Jimmy, there, there is. One of the main differences is the lamb itself. Jewish people today do not eat lamb. It's perfectly kosher. That's not, that's not an issue. It's a, it's a meat that God has certainly allowed, an animal that they can eat. But because the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. and it removed sacrifices, it removed the priests and their functions, although there are people, Jewish people, identify as part of the priestly family, they can't execute it. And so instead of the three biblical elements, the lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs, the Jewish people will keep two of those. They'll have the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread, the matzah, they have a shank bone that represents the lamb, and they also added a number of other things that would go on the Seder plate. Seder means order, Jimmy. I can tell you growing up, celebrating a Seder service for Passover was about a five-hour deal. And you and I don't have that kind of time to talk about Passover, but I can tell you that part of the Seder service is to remember which food items what happened to Israel? So you have, as I said, the shank bone. You have the matzah. The matzah, of course, but biblically we remember they had to leave in haste. They have the bitter herbs. That reminds them of the bitter times while they were in bondage. They have a brown mixture called harosa, which reminds them of the mortar, and it's sweet to the taste, reminds them of the sweetness of freedom. They have the karpas, which is uh, parsley, which reminds them of the hyssop that was used to place on the doorpost of the blood of the Lamb. They have salt water, which reminds them of the tears that were shed while they were in bondage. And interestingly enough, Jimmy, something found on Resurrection Day, some people call it Easter, is an egg. Uh, the rabbis give all kinds of d different reasons for the egg, including it's a mourning food, that is, that Jewish people eat it at morning, and so they mourn for the temple which was destroyed. But each of these elements, Jimmy, take them back to redemption. They want their people to remember and to taste it, bitterness, sweetness, uh, tears, all those things. And Jimmy, Jesus celebrated Passover, we know that, and he took that redemption holiday, that redemption day so important to Jewish history, and instituted what you and I and what many of your listeners do on a regular basis to remember another redemption, this time of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and a reminder of that redemption. And Jesus took the time to celebrate an eating lamb and then became the Passover lamb, if you will, the Lamb of God that takes away not just the sins for 
physical salvation for one people, the Jewish people, but takes away the sins of the world and redeems a people that are not limited to a particular ethnicity and physicality. And that is, that's our gospel. That's our good news. That's what we proclaim. And Passover is a wonderful way, uh, as we view our Jewish friends, as we interact with them, we can look at what happened historically to the Jewish people and rejoice in the Lord that he sent Jesus Christ, the second person, to redeem us. And so, Jimmy, you and I, we, we rejoice in salvation, don't we? We certainly do, and 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus is our Passover. Matthew 27 gives us the facts that Jesus was actually crucified on Passover three days and three nights, resurrected from the dead after that crucifixion. Steve, thank you so very much. It's great to have an opportunity to talk with you periodically throughout the year when we have the Jewish Holy Days Passover the first of the seven feasts to be observed by the Jewish people. So we're off and running for this year, but thank you so much for this report on Passover this time. Thanks, Jimmy. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll go into our last half hour on the broadcast. David James will be talking about Christian missionaries and missions around the world. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to the last half hour of our 90-minute broadcast, Prophecy Today. I have one more broadcast partner, David James. He's standing by. But quickly, let me remind you to answer our poll question. That question on the home page, Prophecy Today, on the left-hand column. Here's the question. As we watch the Jewish world celebrate the eight-day feast of Passover. Do you believe this is a good time to introduce to our Jewish friends the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who was crucified on Passover about 2,000 years ago, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 27? That's the poll question. Please answer it. We now bring to this microphone David James. David and I, each and every week, will take an issue, discuss it from a biblical perspective, and try to help you understand how God's Word gives us very much information as to how to address that particular issue. This will help us in our daily walk with the Lord. So glad you could join us for this conversation today. And David, thank you for being available during all of your research. We're going to be talking about world missions and the cancel culture. We'll do that in a moment. But this week, one of our listeners has sent us a question concerning the nature of the weapons that might well be used in the future war described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Your time to respond. 
Well, Jimmy, that's an interesting question and uh, one that comes up occasionally, and he asked if we might be able to discuss it in our weekly segment. This was the question he asked. He says, a question I always have concerns the future war of nations against Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about burning the weapons of war in 39, 9, and 10, talking about small and large shields, bows and arrows, javelins and spears. Then he wrote, I've never heard a prophecy teacher touch on the actual weapons, do you believe there will be some type of nuclear confrontation that will destroy modern weapons and set us back millennia, or perhaps something else that will result in using these types of weapons? I read the text literally, he says, and believe the Lord told Ezekiel these will actually be the weapons used at the time of battle. So, Jimmy, the first thing to remember is that, especially with prophecy, there can be figurative language, but even with that, it represents a singular literal truth. So the point is that the actual weapons might be different. Secondly, in the second century B.C., Ezekiel would have had no concept of modern weapons. So even if modern weapons were in view, the Lord could only have revealed it through language that Ezekiel understood. However, that being said, there is a clue in verse 10 that indicates primitive weapons are in view when it says this, they will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons. So I don't know what will happen to get the world to that point, but you can't burn modern weapons instead of wood. So as always, context is everything when it comes to interpreting Scripture correctly. Well, indeed, we need to, as you say, look at the book of Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, and Zechariah using apocalyptic terminology, which could well be what is meant there in Ezekiel 39, I do believe, just similar to what you said. David, earlier this week, Wheaton College made headlines when it removed a plaque from the foyer of its main chapel. It commemorated, this plaque did, commemorated five missionaries who were killed by a tribal group in Ecuador in 1956. Remind us of what did happen, the reason for the plaque. Well, let's start with this. An article on the Chicago Tribune website began this way. A plaque at Wheaton College that referred to indigenous people as savages has been removed after students and staff expressed concern about the language. And the article went on to say, the 64-year-old plaque commemorated five missionaries slain in Ecuador, including three who were alumni of the DuPage County Christian Liberal Arts College of that school. And school officials are looking to replace the plaque, and a task force will review a potential new wording. And in a letter to students, faculty, and staff, President Philip Riken said, the word savage is regarded as a pejorative and has been used historically to dehumanize and mistreat indigenous peoples around the world. Any descriptions on our campus of people or people groups should reflect the full dignity of human beings made in the image of God. So to be honest, Jimmy, uh, as a missionary of 30 years and with a ministry that involves keeping an eye on trends in the church and culture as a whole, I do have several concerns about this decision. Uh, one concern is about how today's cancel culture is beginning to impact the evangelical church. And a second concern is that I think it's just symptomatic of the ongoing erosion of the church's commitment to missions 
and the need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and, and to make disciples. David, I'm a bit curious about the actual wording on the plaque. I've never been able to visit Wheaton and see and read the plaque itself. Why is it considered to be so offensive? Can you share with us exactly what it said? Well, Jimmy, I actually found a picture of the plaque in an article on the Christian Post website, and so let me share the entire text. Go ye and preach the gospel dedicated to the glory of God and in loving memory of Edward McCulley, president of the class of 1949, and James Elliott, 49 likewise, and outstanding athlete and leader. Because of the Great Commission, Ed and Jim, together with Nathaniel Saint, 1950, Roger Udarian, and Peter Fleming went to the mission field willing for anything, anywhere, regardless of the cost. They chose the jungles of Ecuador inhabited by the Alca Indians. For generations, all strangers were killed by these savage Indians, and there's the word. And then it goes on to say, after many days of patient preparation and devout prayer, the missionaries made the first friendly contact known to history with the Alcas. On January 8, 1956, the missionaries were brutally slain, martyrs for the love of God. And then finally it says, erected by the class of 1949, January 8, 1957, and then includes a partial quote of 2 Corinthians 5.14, which says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. David, uh, can you give us any additional details about the story of these missionaries and the impact that this particular incident had on world missions in the years that followed? Sure. Well, Jim Elliott and Peter Fleming arrived in Quito, Ecuador in February 1952, uh, where they spent a year learning Spanish, and then they moved to a Quechua Indian village, uh, learned that language, and reached many Quechuas for Christ. Uh, however, there was a serious problem with the nearby Warani Indians who killed many Quechuas, and so Elliott and Fleming, along with three other missionaries, decided the only way to stop the killing was to reach that group with the gospel. So Nate Saint was a pilot, and they found a beach on a river in Warani territory that was large enough to land his plane, and after four days, a Warani man and two women came out of the jungle and shared a meal with them. Then a couple of days later, two women approached them, and as the men went to meet them, a group of Warani warriors attacked them from behind with spears, killing all five men. And then news of their martyrdom quickly spread around the world and actually inspired a whole new generation of missionaries. And beyond that, in less than two years, Jim Elliott's widow, Elizabeth, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, who I actually heard speak at Word of Life when I was a student there back in 85, they were able to move to the Warani village, uh, where many became believers. And according to the Joshua Project, as of 2017, 40% of the Waranis are now identified as Christians. And one of the most well-known quotes in missions came from Jim Elliott a few months after he graduated from Wheaton College when he wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Wow, what a statement. Well, earlier on in this conversation, David, you mentioned the erosion of the church's commitment to missions. How do you see the effect of cancel culture in our society, 
possibly contributing to this decline in interest in missions. Well, Jimmy, let me first say something about cancel culture and the word savage in, on the Wheaton plaque. Back in the day, in the in the 80s, when I first heard uh, the Jim Elliott story, everyone was calling the Warani the Alka Indians, which is the word that was on the plaque for that people group. And that is what this other tribe was called by the Quechua Indians. And interestingly, the word Alka means savage in the Quechua language. So the plaque is supposedly insensitive and racist for using a term used by one tribal group for another, and they were called Alkas because of their actions, just as we would continue to say that the Babylonians or the Romans were brutal and savage in their military tactics. But beyond that, I think cancel culture provides a sort of ethical and maybe psychological support for a theological problem that's been developing for years, and that is that missions is unnecessary and even harmful, according to some. You know, a, a 2008 Pew Research Center survey confirmed what I've been suspecting for years up to that time, and that is that while we're theoretically evangelicals, many are practically, in practical terms, universalists, meaning that many evangelicals or so-called evangelicals don't think Christ is the only way of salvation. And that study showed that almost 60% of evangelicals believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Now, I think this partly explains why there's so little emphasis on missions in our churches today as compared to 30 years ago. And going back to cancel culture, what happens when other Wheaton staff or students want the new plaque removed because they think just evangelizing those who haven't heard the gospel represents white Western Christianity and is condescending, hateful, bigoted, and disrespectful of other people and their beliefs, and, and I'm quite sure that there are such students and staff who believe those things at Wheaton. David, I'd like to follow up on that last point, if you'll let me. How do we respond to this increasing universalism in the church, even among some evangelicals who have historically believed that everyone must hear the gospel in order to be saved? Well, Jimmy, there are many passages we could talk about. Of course, there's John 3.16, where Jesus told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then two verses later, Jesus said, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then, of course, in John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and, Jimmy, another thing to consider is that if any people group could have been saved apart from hearing, understanding, and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would have been the first century Jews. In fact, Paul talks about all the advantages that they had in uh, Romans chapter 9. But then in Romans 10, verse 12, Paul says there's no difference between Jews and Greeks. And then in the next three verses, we read this. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And that's a rhetorical question. And the answer is, they can't. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And the answer is they can't. And how shall they hear 
without a preacher, and the answer is they can't. So, Jimmy, the point is clear. We must carry the gospel to the world and to do what we need to get a new generation that is willing to follow in the footsteps of Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming, Nate Saint, and Ed McCauley, and Roger Udarian. I do believe that should be on the heart of every single born-again Christian, and especially churches. Churches need to have a revival of sending missionaries out to the world. In fact, the book of Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 12 says, we can hasten, I do believe it means, we can hasten the rapture of the church by winning people to Jesus Christ. He said he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to know him as Lord and Savior. David, thanks for bringing this to our attention. I think it was a very important discussion, especially for the body of Christ and for church leaders and churches themselves. Thank you so much. We'll have another conversation next week. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be with you again. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll take all the reports from my broadcast partners, open the book, the Bible, and explain the prophetic perspective for these events. All ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we had six of our broadcast partners come to the broadcast table to give us reports on major stories in the world media, reports that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. 
We bring these men to the broadcast table so that they can get insight on how current events are actually helping us to see how close we are to the prophetic scenario that is found in the Bible, how close we are to the prophecies being fulfilled. Let me remind you that if you had to miss any of these reports, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. That's on the right-hand column of the home page of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you can find all six reports archived. They're there for you to be able to listen to them at your convenience. Please tell a family member or a friend about these reports. Again, that's prophecytoday.com, Prophecy Today Radio Network. Right now on Prophecy Today Weekend, it's time for me to give you my prophetic perspective on these reports from the broadcast partners. Ken Timmerman covers the geopolitical events of our world. His lead story, The Cold War Between China and America, actually started last week. You do remember that the Chinese and the American diplomats sat face-to-face in a meeting there in Alaska, and there were some pretty harsh words passed between the two. By the way, let me remind you that this Cold War is temporary, since only China is included in the prophetic passages of God's Word. That's Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, where China is included as one of the kings of the East. America is not mentioned in Bible prophecy. Perhaps China will destroy America. David Dolan gave us his Middle East news update. Again, we were talking about China. China plans to invite the Palestinians and the Israelis to come to China to discuss a resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This Israeli-Palestinian conflict is some 4,000 years old and actually will not be resolved until Jesus Christ comes back at his second coming. That's Obadiah, verse 18. No one except Jesus can make that happen, not China or the United States. Winky Madad gave us a very important in-depth look at the recent Israeli elections, which fell short of being able to form a coalition government in Israel. Israel's government must come together and form a stable government. God uses human government. Revelation chapter 17, verse 17, not only government, but political leaders to be able to guide and direct these nations into the plan that the Lord has for the end times. You pray that this government will come together in Israel. John Rood covers another key region of the world, that's the European Union. And the foreign minister of Russia said this week that Moscow has no relationship with the European Union. I quickly remind you 
that the European Union and Russia, who are key players today, will also be key players in Bible prophecy in the future. European Union will be the revived Roman Empire, that's Daniel chapter 7, and Russia, Ezekiel 38. The Passover is being celebrated by the Jewish world the next eight days, and Steve Herzig came to tell us the story of the Passover. This is the story of the exodus from bondage into freedom. And by the way, Jesus is our Passover. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. And Jesus Christ was crucified actually on Passover, as recorded in Matthew chapter 27. David James and I had a conversation focused on missions, worldwide missions, which is basically the heart of God. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord says, I am not willing that any should perish, but all should come to know me as their Lord and Savior. And I want to let you know that we can hasten the rapture by winning people to Jesus Christ. That's Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. I mentioned Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Jesus tells us he is not slack concerning his promise of the rapture. It will happen, and I do believe, very, very soon now. Let me remind you that if you had to miss any of these reports, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. That's on the right-hand column of the home page of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today Radio Network, and there you can find all six reports archived. They're there for you to be able to listen to them at your convenience. Please tell a family member or a friend about these reports. Again, that's prophecytoday.com, Prophecy Today Radio Network. But remember, again, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 12, we can, you and I, can hasten the rapture by going out and winning people to Jesus Christ. I invite you to make that a part of your everyday lifestyle. Don't forget that rapture could happen at any moment, even today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.